Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything to do with Australian politics and more. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at the big issues that have kicked off the 2019 year in politics. Will climate change and the environment be a big factor in the two elections this year? And we inspect the Royal Commission into banking. Has the public been shortchanged yet again? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, international playboy and man about town. January is usually a quiet period for politics, but when there's an election to be won, there's going to be a lot of activity. It's been an action-packed start to 2019, where we had three ministers resigning from the Liberal National Party, pre-selection battles in the seat of Gilmore, franking credits got a mention, as did Captain Cook in the Culture Wars, and there was a big, big debate about the right to wear thongs and board shorts on Australia Day. It's been quite a weird summer. We didn't get the break we so richly deserved as, as political analysts. I think the first thing to sort of point out is that we don't have a quiet news period anymore. Thanks, I think, to 24-hour news, but also the ubiquity of the internet. The news cycle doesn't even quieten down. So things like putting in unpopular policy in the first week of January where everybody's on holidays doesn't work anymore because your smartphone beeps and there it is right in front of you. That's something that governments probably all over the world are are struggling with. Usually January is, is a quiet period and, as I mentioned before, but we do have this little issue this year, which is two elections coming up quite soon. There is the New South Wales election on March the 23rd, and we do have a federal election, which is due before May the 18th. So there are things that are going to be happening here. So I think that's probably why we ended up having not such a quiet period in January. There's so many things that are happening this year in politics. It's been a weird and unusual summer. Since Tony Abbott became leader of the opposition, all rules have been suspended, I think. I've said that before, but I think it's worth repeating. The usual does not apply. And as a result, we are looking for the new rules. And I'm not sure that there are any. We also have a government that is not terribly effective. There's talk of another leadership spill. I don't know how serious that talk is, but apparently the Dutton forces are trying to mobilise again. Partly that would be to save his seat. He doesn't look like he's going to win his seat in the next election. But partly it's from the disappointing performance of of the current Prime Minister. We've seen a lot of resignations, as you said, Kelly O'Dwyer, Julia Banks, Michael Keenan, Nigel Scullion. Every election brings across members of Parliament who decide it's time to leave. Nigel Scullion, for example, is 62, and his press release, I think, actually was a bit genuine in that he wants to go off and shoot feral pigs and go yabbying and enjoy his retirement. But it doesn't look good when other younger people whose careers haven't quite finished yet are also jumping ship. Well, to lose one minister in one week, that's a disaster. To lose two is quite a, quite a bit careless, I'd say. I don't know what losing three ministers is in the one week. It was almost like there was a domino effect that was happening. Because we did have the resignation of three ministers, there was speculation that there would be more to follow. Are we likely to see more ministers resigning over the next couple of weeks? There are whispers 
about particular ministers who are caught in inappropriate situations, whether they will go. Of course, this has all been sideswiped by Tim Wilson behaving abominably with his uh, parliamentary inquiry and trying to get people to sign a petition, the financial skullduggery involved around it, and very serious and I think think sustainable calls for his resignation. So I think anyone who was hoping to sort of resign this week without too much fanfare will be talked into putting it off for a while till Tim Wilson's problems either go away in the hope of the Liberal Party or he will stand down in the hope of the Labor Party and, and everybody else. So Tim Wilson is the member for Goldstein in Victoria. He's the Liberal MP. Now, he's been running this roadshow all around Australia about the franking credits issue, which the Liberal Party hopes will create havoc for the Labor Party. Now, the franking credits process, it's a, it's a process where someone receives a tax refund if they own shares in a company without actually paying the tax in the first place. So it's, it's quite an expensive scheme. It costs the government $5.2 billion per year. And that's the equivalent of the salaries for 40,000 nurses and teachers. And it compares to the $5.9 billion that the government spends on public schools, $8 billion that they spend on early childhood education across Australia. $5.2 billion each and every year. That's quite a substantial amount. It's one of those issues that 20 years ago would have been managed better. And this goes back to my first point, that 24-hour news plus alternative media changes how things get managed 20 years ago or 25 years ago, the Murdoch papers would have run this terrible retiree tax, putting just enough doubt in the minds of people to think, well, yes, this is actually good for pensioners. Social media sites like Twitter, independent news sources have all pointed out it's a tax refund on tax that hasn't been paid. And the examples that they've used, the infamous Joan, who was on $130,000 a year, and was going to lose 13000 of that. For somebody who's maybe working three part-time jobs or is on Newstart or is on a disability pension or is in a low-paid job at, in retail or, or in a factory somewhere, $130,000 is an is a executive wage. And it's hard to find sympathy. And, of course, those people who know about it have realised that not only is she on 130000 she's on 130000 tax-free. It's not as if we're taking money away from an old age pensioner. Now, of course, I don't wish to disparage self-funded retirees, people who've saved and been lucky enough and smart enough and hardworking enough to fund their own retirement. And I think that this should be encouraged where possible. But I don't think they're figures of great sympathy compared to other sectors of society. Well, the main message that they've been putting out is that we've worked hard all of our lives to save up, and that's totally understandable. But it's not like self-funded retirees that end up receiving this franking credits tax refund. It's not like they're the only people in the society that work hard. Everyone works pretty damn hard. So I think it's just been an unfortunate way that this has all been pushed forward. It's it's an odd system that they're trying to defend, and it's an odd process that Tim Wilson is, is going through at the moment. It shows the tinny and the inept political manoeuvrings of the, the government. I guess it shows how much they're out of touch, how he thought he'd ever get sympathy for such a thing once the details came out. And I guess by filling a hall with your supporters and then having friendly mainstream press there, 
promoting, you know, all these angry senior citizens whose lifestyle is at risk, and that backfired on him terribly. Politics, of course, is the art of being able to sell your ideas. He hasn't been able to do that. If anything, it's highlighted why it's such a bad idea. Now, we also had Australia Day on January 26th. Now, Australia Day has been on that day for a long, long time. There is that whole debate about whether it's Invasion Day or whether it's a commemoration of landing at uh, Jackson Cove in 1788. A lot of people are unsure about what it actually is. We can put aside that for the time being, but what it is good for these days, it's great for a good old-fashioned culture war day. And that seems to be what January 26th is all about these days. It's about the culture wars. And each year, the Prime Minister, especially if it's a Liberal Prime Minister, they bring up a new version of the culture wars. And this year, it was about Captain Cook. Captain Cook and whether he circumnavigated the country or not. And of course he didn't. It was Matthew Flinders and Bungary that did that. Scott Morrison seemed to think that the commemoration in 2020 about James Cook should be all about circumnavigating the country, and he never actually did that. But he is quite prepared to spend up to $60 million for the 2020 commemoration of James Cook. Australia Day is obviously very problematic. Even putting aside, we're no longer an Anglo society, and and haven't been since 1972 officially, but since 1788. I forget how many nationalities were on the first fleet. It was, there were French, there were Russians, there were Maltese, there were Italian. Its big problem, of course, is what it means to Indigenous people. And this is an argument that we've never properly had, or at least it's never been properly played out fully in public. There are many Indigenous people and many non-Indigenous people who say it every year, who want the date changed to something more appropriate. And I think that that is an argument that we do need to have. We can have both a commemoration, a day of reflection, and a day of celebration. But when the flag-waving patriotism comes out, and really all that means is that racists can, can come out and speak freely about who did what to whom, and what is suffering, and in these laughable and anti-historical... The other thing about Captain Cook is that he wasn't even the first Englishman to come, let alone the first European to come to the Australian continent. William Dampier had come here 90 or 100 years before. Scott Morrison also went one step further. He decided that he was going to be the Prime Minister for Standards and he said that there was going to be a dress code on Australia Day ceremony. So that means that there's no thongs or board shorts if you're receiving your citizenship at an Australian Day ceremony. Now, I can recall that Benito Mussolini in, in the 1930s, he also introduced a dress code for, for the Italians. And is this a good thing or is it a silly thing? I'm not sure what he actually means by being the Prime Minister for standards. There are some things, of course, I think it is right to dress up for. But I also think that the Australian way is that it's your own choice. I am wondering if it's more of an attempt to get people out of traditional clothing that they may wish to wear of their own culture. Most people who take citizenship take it very seriously and see the citizenship ceremony as being a very important thing. So most people dress up in at least smart casual. It may be too hot for a suit, on Australia Day. Most people dress to the standard that Scott Morrison requires. 
I suspect there was a little bit of dog whistling in terms of look at these loutish, awful people who can't even dress properly for a ceremony, of course, who probably don't exist. So it was another form of inept race baiting. Back in 2015 on Australia Day, Tony Abbott made a captain's call and that's when he decided to award a knighthood to Prince Philip. And a lot of people see that as the beginning of the end of Tony Abbott's prime ministership. The day after Australia Day this year, Scott Morrison also did a captain's call when he announced that Warren Mundine was going to be pre-selected for the seat of Gilmore. The problem is that they already had a pre-selected candidate in there, Grant Schultz, six months before. They decided to parachute Warren Mundine into the seat of Gilmore. I think this is a bit of a mistake. What's your reading about this? It's certainly a mistake. Warren Mundine, who is notably described as the only rat to run onto a sinking ship, was rejected as a candidate by the Labor Party. Now, the reasons for this have never really come out, but he had been president of the the Labor Party. And generally, presidents of of all parties tend to have a fairly good chance at a seat. He then joined the Liberal Democrats for a while, that strange and bizarre organisation for little people with no imagination, and then finally gets what seems to be his lifelong dream, a pre-selection for a seat. Now, I'm sure he'd love a safe seat, and of course all politicians would, but he's got Gilmore. My feeling is that this is not a very good call at all by Scott Morrison. So Warren Mundine, he doesn't actually live anywhere near the seat of Gilmore. And the seat of Gilmore, for, for those that don't know about it, it's on the southern coast of New South Wales. It's about 150 kilometres south of Sydney. Warren Mundine lives in the north shore of Sydney, and that's quite an exclusive, rich area of, of Sydney. Probably if they did want to have Warren Mundine in Parliament, they should have given him a seat in North Sydney. There's quite a few seats up there that could be that he could have been parachuted into. So the problem is that it's a very marginal seat. It's it's held currently by the Liberal Party by 0.7% of a margin. A couple of coughs and that seat is gone. And a few sneezes, it's all over. So why they decided to put him in, in an ultra marginal seat, which is far away from where he actually lives, is it's it's a very strange decision. Now I can see a little bit of thinking behind uh, that decision. Now, the seat of Gilmore does have a larger Indigenous population than the national average. The national average is 3%, and in in Gilmore, it's 5%. Now, this is probably too marginal to make any difference, but the other factor is that Warren Mundine is actually quite a divisive character within the Indigenous community. So so it's very hard to see how this is going to play out for the the Liberal Party in the seat of Gilmore, but it was a captain call from... Scott Morrison, and I don't think it's going to end well. The other thing too, think about it as a party members in Gilmore, you've spent, you know, maybe 12 months getting Grant Schultz ready, getting ready to give a good fight, a hard fight, but with a candidate you've known and you've trusted for a long time. And then after all Liberal seats had been confirmed to save Craig Kelly, of all people, suddenly Grant Schultz, a popular, well-liked character, is kicked out for a, a man who doesn't even live in the area. He's got a maximum of three months to get down there, find a house, move in, establish himself, get to know the community, and then win the volunteers over. 
I don't think he can do it. Grant Schultz has also resigned from the Liberal Party and he's decided to run in the seat as an independent. There's also a few other independents that are up against some Liberals in in seats in New South Wales and also in Victoria. So I noticed, it's, I noticed that Zali Stegall, she's running against Tony Abbott in the seat of Warringah. Julia Banks, she resigned from the Liberal Party and is running against Greg Hunt in the seat of Flinders in Victoria. Oliver Yates, he's actually a member of the Liberal Party, although he's never been in Parliament. He's running up against Josh Frydenberg in the seat of Kuyong. These are ex-liberal and light liberals challenging safe liberal seats. Are they? Have they got much of a chance in these seats? It's going to be interesting. Nearly all of them differentiate from the people sitting in the seats is on social issues, climate change or same-sex marriage. Nearly all of them have stated that they are economic conservatives who believe in a lower tax rate, who are likely to keep the various tax advantages for the wealthy in negative gearing and all of that. I think we are seeing a response to the right wing of the Liberal Party. I think Zali Stegall is in with an extremely good chance. Famously, it was pointed out that Tony Abbott's household represented Warringah in the same-sex marriage plebiscite in that of the four of them who lived in there, three voted in favour and Tony voted against. Tony was out complaining about lobbying for more permanent public toilets at uh, Manly Beach. So clearly he's not taking the seat for granted for the next six to eight weeks or however long it is till the election. I don't think it'll be enough. He may scrape in on he may scrape in on preferences. It seems that unlike last time where there were, I think, 23 people all vying to beat him, and as a result, none of them could, there is a figure who is nationally known, who is qualified, she's a barrister, has a grasp of legislation and, and how politics works, and who shares the people of Warringah's ambitions and ideas on how their money should be managed. Well, it does get down to the quality of the candidates in all of those seats, but it's also a mathematical computation as well. As you mentioned before, it depends on how many other independents and how many other candidates are in that particular seat and the preference flows, the exchanges and that that sort of thing. But I did notice that in Warringah, some of the other candidates, as soon as Zali Stegall did announce her intention to run in that seat, the others dropped out. I think they realised that if there's too many people in these seats running against Liberal Party sitting Liberal Party MPs, that that lessens their chance. It dilutes the vote and it actually offers support for for that Liberal member that they're running against. I think that uh, Zali Stegall has got a pretty good chance in Moringa. I'm not so sure about Oliver Yates in Kuyong, although there was a recent Reachtel poll in the seat of Kuyong that showed that the LNP was only polling at 48% to the Labor Party 52%. Now, polls are polls and elections are elections, so they're actually totally different things. But it will be interesting to see how this independent movement plays out in the next election. There are currently six independents on the crossbench, and and with Andam Bant from the Greens, that makes seven. Whether or not there's an outright majority for either party at the next election, I think it's a good thing to have quite a few independents in Parliament as well on the crossbench. I note, too, a lot of the independents are running in fairly safe Liberal seats and presenting as either ex-members of the party or aligned to the party. And this is where people like Josh Frydenberg and Tony Abbott may be in trouble. It's not really a stroke against the Liberal Party per se, it's a stroke against the candidate. 
You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, climate change and the environment. We look at how these issues will influence the next election. In 2007, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said climate change was the greatest moral challenge of our generation. But it seems like it was too much of a challenge and it helped put an end to his Prime Ministership in 2010. Carbon pricing caused problems for Julia Gillard too, and dithering over climate change and energy policy helped end Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership in 2018. It's been 10 years of policy paralysis on climate change and energy policy. So far this summer, We've had fires in the south, floods in the north, fish kills in the Murray-Darling Basin. It's almost like an apocalypse. Why does the political class, especially the Conservatives, why do they keep ignoring the public will on climate change? Money talks. What's generally not recognised is that the first world leader to actually be concerned about climate change was that dangerous lefty Margaret Thatcher who was a scientist and read the numbers and, and understood the numbers in a way that many current figures either can't or refuse to. Now, of course, Thatcher's solution to that was nuclear power, which has its own problems. Um, unless you can guarantee it 100% safe, I'm, I'm not sure it's the best option. But we can also look back at the Republicans in the in the US, where in the 1970s they actually had the Clean Energy Act and environmental initiatives. Well, of course, the Republicans, it's a right-wing party in America. So, But it has been interesting to see how the issue of climate change and the environment has split according to party political lines over the past decade or so. For those people that want to do something about climate change and, and protect the environment, they're seen as left-wing or progressives. And for those that deny that climate change is an issue and couldn't care less about doing anything about the environment, well, they're right-wing people and conservative. But the, the issue is that the environment doesn't discern between left and right. The climate affects everyone. Climate change is affecting everyone. Pollution is affecting everyone. We've just had the hottest month on record. Not the hottest January, the hottest month. So February is not going to be pleasant in the, those parts of the country where February is hotter. Australia is well within the pockets of the mining lobby. It was the mining lobby who essentially was able to roll Kevin Rudd with that, those series of ads. And it's both parties too, I don't want to say, even though Scott Morrison walked into Parliament with a lump of coal and was described by Paul Bongiorno as a clown. It's both parties, obviously, with the Labor Party jobs and the unions being part of the issue. It's not an easy thing. You know, there are thousands and thousands of jobs in mining. And for the Liberal Party, it's making sure that the business is looked after. Developing any policy is, is difficult work. So whether it's financial policy, climate change policy, environmental policy, the upshot is that you need to bring people with you. The one thing that I noticed in 2018, because there was a spate of uh, by-elections and also the Victorian election, 
In most of those elections, the exit polls and people that were speaking to pollsters as they were walking out of the election booth, I said the big issue for them was climate change. It was obviously a massive issue in the Wentworth by-election, which Karen Phelps ended up winning. It was an issue in Longman in Queensland. It was a big issue in the Victorian state election as well. So I know that each year is different politically. That all happened in 2018. But we've had a lot of climate change issues at the beginning of this year. Queensland is having its floods. Tasmania is on fire. Sydney is unusually hot. We have the fish kills in the Menindies Lakes. Although that had more to do with Murray-Darling Basin Authority corruption and Barnaby Joyce, but still there's a lot of issues that the public is seeing with their own eyes on, on television screens and also the people that are actually there. They're seeing it with their own eyes in the, in the flesh. So there's a lot of factors that are dovetailing towards this election, the federal election, being determined by climate change factors. I think the public are on the whole coming around to it. The party who's mishandled it, the most is the Greens, actually, only in that they should be at the cutting edge of this given their policy. Instead, they're wrenched with internal division and they're splitting and people are leaving and it's it's all awful. And, of course, this can happen to any political party too. Uh, it's just that matter of bad luck and bad timing that it's happening to the Greens right at the moment where they could be finally taking that dominance that they've been aiming for 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 so many years. Well, you're absolutely right. The Greens should be having a dominant position where if climate change is a big factor for many people in the community, well, the Greens should be at the forefront of of that. They They are developing policy in the background, but I guess it's that cut through process where if there's so many other things happening, if there's a little if there's internal division happening within your party, it's difficult to get any message out there. I have heard talk about the Liberal National Party actually releasing a climate policy soon. I think if they're politically sensible, well, they should do that. But will they have a credibility problem? As you mentioned, Scott Morrison dragged a lump of coal into Parliament. Will he be believed? The only thing that they've got at the moment is this woeful direct action policy that was actually quite a large sum of money that was being paid to polluters. Didn't work, it, but it's actually still there. Direct action in in one form or, or another, but it's it's almost like direct action. Here's our climate change policy. It's ineffective, but we've still got a climate change policy anyway. So will it be a case where the Liberal National Party releases a climate change policy just so that they can say they've got something to announce? It'll be interesting. They don't want to annoy their big donors and they don't want to annoy their, some of their members. They're losing members quite rapidly thanks to these policies. The Greens were picking up a lot of ex-Liberal members, which is partly why there are so many divisions in the Greens. The Greens at the moment are what I might call the, the hippie faction versus the inner-city NIMBYs who don't want to vote Labor. There's a few other factions in there as well, but that's what's causing, I think, a lot of the, the tensions. The Liberal Party is in that awful position where they could release the best policy that works, that pleases everybody, that's good for the environment, that slows global warming, etc., 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 and they won't be believed. I think that goes for their energy policy as well. The two policies, climate change policy and energy policy, they're intertwined. The only thing that they're really doing on energy policy, and this is what Angus Taylor has been mainly talking about over the past couple of months, is pushing prices down. Now, that's really not much of an energy policy. Renewables don't get a mention. There's so many other factors that don't are not taken into account within their energy policy. So 
He's a, he's a new minister. He hasn't been around for, for that long within the portfolio. Sure, you can argue, well, our energy policy is to get prices down, but you see that at a coal supermarket. We should be expecting much better from our energy minister. Certainly, energy prices are at a disgraceful high. I don't know how many people have died over summer from the extreme heat because they couldn't afford to turn their air conditioners on or couldn't afford an air conditioner. I don't know how many people have been hospitalised. And to focus on prices, knowing that renewable energy is much cheaper, is cynical, wrong-headed. I think it's playing to the worst instincts of their voters. And of course, not all of their voters are horrible people with bad instincts. But again, I think it's missing the point. And to save $100 on your energy bill, is that worth flooding in Townsville or Tasmania burning or Sydney burning or losing properties because all the topsoil has been eroded away, despite, in many cases, the best efforts of the farmer? Well, I guess $100 is $100, but it will be up to the electorate to decide whether saving $100 on your electricity bill is enough to not worry about climate action or climate change or the environment. I wish we didn't have cynicism in politics, but that's that's the name of the game. And we've got an election coming up. So, of course, we're going to see a lot of cynical policy announcements, cynical behaviour. I think it's already started off like that this year with so many different factors that the coalition has been putting out. I think it's cynicism with a capital C. It's the last ditch attempts to save government and nothing's worked. But again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make any definite pronouncements because... Uh, it's so easy to get it wrong. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the Banking Royal Commission, and we look at some of the issues which will affect the next election. over the summer, but the greatest amount of heat has been generated by the Banking Royal Commission, with the final report recently delivered by former High Court Judge Kenneth Hayne. It's a damning report on the conduct of the big four banks, Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, NAB and Westpac, and others such as AMP and Macquarie Bank. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has claimed all of the credit for all of the good parts of the report and blamed Labor for all of the negatives, even though it was the Liberal National Party that voted 26 times in the Senate against holding the commission and consistently denied the need for it over four years. Is this politics as usual, or will the public see through the spin generated by Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison? For a Royal Commission they didn't want, and a Royal Commission that they limited the terms incredibly on, what came out has damaged the bank's in the general public. I don't know that it's damaged the banks in the short term. Share prices went up. As far as I can tell, that's because nobody's gone to jail yet and the banks seem to have got away with it. But I think the anger is palpable out there. The notorious shot of Kenneth Hayne refusing to shake Josh Frydenberg's hand. 
I think a lot of that was from the fact that I think Hain knew that there was so much he could have done but wasn't able to due to the terms of the Royal Commission and due to the budget, etc., etc. There's a reckoning coming. Hain, I think, was a little bit conservative in that he didn't split finance services from banks. Well, I guess Kenneth Hain can only do what the terms of the Royal Commission were actually worse. He is more of a black letter lawyer. He was on the High Court for some time, so he retired at the age of 70 three years ago. The Royal Commission itself it lasted for about 15 months. I think there's still more to come. But the whole drive for the Royal Commission, that started back in 2014 after it was actually an ABC Four Corners report that exposed the sales-driven culture of the Commonwealth Bank. There were all these other scandals that uncovered. And there was a Senate inquiry that was set up which recommended a Royal Commission. So that was in June 2014. So that's almost four years that it took for the government to do something about it. Now, we'll just listen to some of these snippets of what the government consistently said over four years. We have, as a government, uh, decided not to have a Royal Commission. We made that decision a long time ago, not because we, uh, you know, don't believe, not because we believe there's nothing going on in terms of problems with the banks. We're not having a banking Royal Commission. There's nothing more than crass populism seeking to undermine, undermine confidence in the banking and financial system. Bill Shorten might be interested in political point scoring about this issue. In fact, he's only been interested in political point scoring. A lawyer's picnic for three years costing $150 million is not going to get an answer for anyone. Having more inquiries and just continuing to uh, look at issues without actually having the capacity to take effective action is not the best way forward. And not time for yet another inquiry that essentially would not be able to do anything about what it finds. There we have it. We've got some responses from the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull of the time, Scott Morrison, Matthias Corman. They all consistently, for four years, said there is absolutely no need for a Royal Commission. John Howard called it rank socialism. Scott Morrison called it a, a whinge fest. So I think they're on the wrong side of history here. So a lot of people, they, they simply misread the room. It took them a long time to come around. This Royal Commission should have started two years ago, three years ago. And if that had been the case, we would have had a far more efficient and far more ethical banking sector now. It's incredible what they were getting away with. Fee for no service. An economy really is only as good as its banking and currency system. And the banking system needs absolute integrity, even down to making sure that every single cent in its system is accounted for. Yes, and the Royal Commission it did uncover almost the full gamut of unethical and illegal acts by the banks, such as charging fees to clients who had died, charging fees to customers for services that were not performed. There was bribery, forgery and falsifying of paperwork, selling incorrect insurance products, loaning large sums of money to people that had no chance at all of paying that back. They also misled the corporate regulator, ASIC and APRA. So there were a whole lot of things that were going going on here and I think generally there is a mistrust of banks that within the public like there's always a feeling that they'll rip you off but this is on another level this is absolutely obscene and and these are the things that the Liberal National Party was determined would never be seen by the public or by anyone and I, I think that's a big mark against them. So most definitely the Liberal Party over the past four years they've been determined not to have a 
a Royal Commission, but there have been some people that have been speaking out. Liberal MP Warren Ench from far north Queensland, he said that there should be a Royal Commission. He mentioned that in 2016, as did several other National Party members as well. There was uh, John Williams that said that there should be a Royal Commission. George Christensen also said that there should be a Royal Commission. Others spoke out from the from the coalition backbench that this, this needs to be done. So it wasn't as though the entire Liberal Party and the National Party decided, well, no, we're not going to have a Royal Commission as well. Although most of the calls came from Bill Shorten, who first mentioned the call for a commission at the National Press Club in uh, 2016. That was the process that kick-started the idea behind a Royal Commission. Although there was the whistleblower, Jeff Morris, he was the Commonwealth Bank whistleblower he's he's been talking about an investigation or a royal commission since 2008 so it's been a long time coming but the liberal national party they did completely misread the public mood on this factor and and they're just coming across as people that wanted to offer a protection racket that's exactly it and again another mishandled poorly thought through drop ball by the prime minister was to try and start up a scare campaign about union thugs this has backfired as a Union membership has grown quite a lot in the last 10 years. And it was quickly pointed out that the average unionist was a 45-year-old woman who's a nurse. He's managed to alienate quite a big proportion and also get the public offside. The idea of painters and dockers dealing in stolen property and all of that hasn't really been accurate since, or since probably during the Accords. For all the talk of the CFMEU, The Royal Commission into that saw one or two lot of charges laid, which were then later dropped. The Bank Royal Commission won't have any charges laid, but there's certainly 76 recommendations in which charges could be laid. The Union Royal Commission found that, in fact, things are working well. And people notice this and people remember it. Deflection is a fine art within politics and... And of course, that's what politicians generally try to do. They try and deflect all the bad news to, to others and take credit for all the for all the good things. So I just wanted to play this, this little snippet of Josh Frydenberg in response to the Banking Royal Commission report. The Coalition, of course, fought tooth and nail against this Royal Commission, blocking it 26 times. What was the rationale behind resisting it? Well, Georgie, look, we can debate the failure of the Labor government when they were last in power and they had a number of financial scandals on their watch. All right. You did, of course, though, vote against it 26 times. So now you concede that the industry does, in fact, need an overhaul and you say the recommendations will be implemented pretty much in full. I guess the question, though, is why should we trust a government that had to be dragged into this investigation in the first place? Well, actually, Georgie, we've been making a number of significant... Was the Coalition wrong to strenuously oppose a Royal Commission uh, into the banks for as long as it did? Oh, look, we can debate for hours, Lee, uh, what Labor uh, failed to do when they no, were in office. No, I'm asking but about I'm, you. Well, I'm looking to the future. And when we first came to government, one of the first... There we have it. It's a classic deflection. It's pretty obvious. And my feeling is that that deflection is too obvious. There's, there's a lot of people that have been burnt by the by the banking sector a lot of people that are furious about the information that's been coming out of the royal commission did josh frydenberg really strike the right tone when he just deflected all of the issues to the labor party immediately like i I think it would have been better if he was a little bit more contrite offered a heartfelt apology to the public say that we're sorry about this we should have acted sooner then they could have moved on from that certainly hindsight is 2020 vision but 
to to blame Labor. You could hear eyeballs around Australia rolling so hard, you know, I think it caused a wobble in the procession of the earth, including the Prime Minister, which is, this is going to be a big call. Josh Frydenberg seems the most out of his depth. Scott Morrison is totally out of his depth. Josh Frydenberg seems even more out of his depth than Scott Morrison. And I think partly he was handed a hospital pass that he wasn't really expecting in terms of the Banking Royal Commission. But his work as a minister in policy development wasn't successful. The Monday before he became deputy leader and treasurer, he'd had the major policy that he'd been working on for months comprehensively rejected by the party room. I think you're right. Had he got up and said, look, we should have called it earlier, we were wrong. However, we have called it and look at these results and tried to play out the recommendations and we'll be considering all of these without committing to anything because they clearly have no intention. But had he acted with a little bit of humility, a little bit of reflection and a little bit of contriteness, he would have come across a bit better. He did actually come out and say that they'll be offering a a suite of legislative frameworks and resources and powers to the regulators. This isn't going to happen. There's only 10 more sitting days before the next election. They're the ones that actually pulled out $200 million from ASIC and APRA over the past five years. So to say that they've been providing this to the regulators in the past when they haven't, and they'll, they'll provide the regulators with the powers and resources in the future... This simply isn't going to happen. Traditionally, the Liberal Party doesn't like regulation within the banking sector. Now, we have to remember that of the past 23 years, since 1996, the Coalition has been in government for 17 of those 23 years and the Labor Party has been in government for six of those years. Since 1996, a lot of regulations just went out the window, certainly in 2013. If you can remember that Tony Abbott had that infamous red tape repeal day, which ended up being more like a brown nose day for corporate Australia... The Liberal Party is not the party of regulation. The party is not the it's not the party that wants to put things into control and, and regulate the markets. A lot of these are weasel words. These things are not going to happen. There simply isn't enough legislative time between now and the le- next election for the Liberal National Party to do anything about these recommendations. I think that will be left to a different government to look after. It was a Liberal government, of course, who set up ICAC in New South Wales. And ICAC's first major uh, success was against the Liberal Premier, Nick Greiner, later overturned in the Supreme Court. It was also a Liberal government in New South Wales who cut funding into ICAC while seven or eight of its members were being investigated. And it's the same with ASIC. It's funny how the budget gets cut at a time where it's most needed and the organisation needs teeth. The philosophical argument over regulation will continue. Naturally, those who are bound by regulation will want a bit less of it. Those who are, who are affected by it on the other end will want a bit more of it. A balance has to be found. On the whole, and I will happily admit any exceptions, because I, I know they exist, on the whole, regulation works. In Sydney, of course, we've had the Opal Tower which was signed off under certain legislation that avoided most regulation. It's now not falling down, we've been assured, but it's uninhabitable and there are cracks all the way through it. I think we're seeing the death of the neoliberal experiment, which starts with Thatcherism and Reaganomics and Hawke and Keating and then Howard in Australia. I think we're seeing it the final death throes, although I think it'll take a good 10 or 15 years to really remove the rest of it 
because there's still a lot of people in parliament and in positions of power around the world who still believe in it because they and their friends benefit from it. I don't think the banks will be able to run scattershot the way they have done. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating and a review. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next month.